Welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially funded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. You could just donate a pound to get us a coffee. Although I don't know where you'd get a coffee for a pound. Thank you to our current backers. You're very much appreciated. Um, and today it's just us with no guest. It is just us. What are we going to talk about? Well, the thing I want to talk about first is that there's literally a website dedicated to not buying the microphone that I am using to record this podcast. Oh, one website? There's a lot of websites. Maybe there yeah, are no, also some good It's literally reviews. called don'tbuyayeti.com. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And um, do they make good arguments? Do you need a new mic? I Well, I bought this microphone and I bought one for Die Barnes when we did the previous um, podcast I used to do today in digital education. Um, and this website, it's uh, don'tbuyayeti.com. It's called a Blue Yeti microphone. Uh, the Blue Yeti is a popular microphone marketed to be much more than what it is. For the money, you can get something that sounds so much better. Here's why the Yeti isn't so great. Da, 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 da. And then it recommends like ones that cost loads of money. So you've got one that costs loads of money, and I'm sure you sound much better than me, but I'd love some feedback from people who listen to this as to how much better Laura sounds than me and whether I need to shell out on a professional microphone. I. I don't think this was so super expensive. I mean, it is a professional microphone, but it, I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on what you define as loads of money for a thing that is tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> I spent about, what, 50, 50 pounds on okay. this? Okay. Well, mine is worth twice as much. Right. About. Well, maybe I need, I've had this for, what, 10 years, maybe? Oh, well, that probably makes a bit of a difference. Although I don't know how much audio equipment has advanced in the past 10 years. Hmm. Like, and, you know, I mean, it looks pretty. My mic anyway, looks The feedback nice. I want from people listening is, do I need to get a new microphone? You're, it's fine just to say, yes, I will buy a new microphone. But um, yeah, it, I can't believe there's a website literally focused on my microphone, which I think is unreasonable. But there we go. So we're not talking about microphones today. No, 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 no. No, what are we, what are we talking about? We're talking about self-hosting IT. Okay. Um, and I wrote a blog post yesterday. Um, you know, obviously, I write lots of blog posts, but this particular one was me going out in the sunshine in my garden, and I've got this Android-based big e-reader, like a 10-inch e-reader, and I can connect an external kind of Bluetooth keyboard to it. So for the first time in the bright sunshine, my wife came out and sat next to me with her MacBook Pro, which you could just see the screen of. And I bashed out this blog post and it's entitled Video Conferencing May Be a Technology, But So Is Sociocracy. And basically it's all about, as you know, we decided yesterday in our We Are Open meeting not to self-host Jitsi, which is a um, uh, uh, open source video conferencing solution. And I thought that, well, we thought we might talk about this because everyone assumes that we're called We Are Open and therefore we only use open source technology. So I thought we could explore that a little bit. Yeah, and we can talk about, you know, how to host uh, your own technologies, some of the pitfalls that people run into, 
And uh, we have some good advice on if you're, you know, not looking to mess around with your own servers. We know a couple of co-ops that do uh, some great architecture work for you. Uh, so we can talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, let's um, let's let's have a little bit of a chat about what openness actually means, because I think we get this a lot. People always assume that we're only going to ever recommend open source technology. Openness is not just about open technologies. And while we do uh, try to default to uh, open tech whenever possible, I think I think sometimes in a professional work environment, it's a little bit tricky. Um, so mm. I know, Doug, you uh, have a Linux computer and um, I have several Linux several computers. Linux computers. And uh, I... You and I have discussed this and actually thought about it multiple times. I have a MacBook Pro, actually. Um, And I think, I don't know, I think um, sometimes getting stuff done on behalf of the greater good is kind of where I lean on the open technology. Um, Yeah, I think we have similar views, but we're at slightly different parts of the spectrum. And I think part of it is I enjoy tinkering. Mm. And if you and I don't enjoy being a systems administrator, but I enjoy tinkering. So, for example, in the last month, I have tried to replace my home broadband with a 5G router. I've got a mesh network. I've installed Asahi Linux on a Mac Mini M1. Um, I've been self trying to self-host Jitsi, which we'll talk a little bit about, all that kind of stuff. But that just comes from my... I enjoy tinkering with tech, software, hardware, whatever. But I think we've both got the same values in terms of we want tech to be decentralized. We don't particularly like big tech, whatever. Um, So six years ago, when we set up the co-op, we did actually try our best not to use, for example, Google, what's now called Google Workspace, didn't we? Yeah, we had a, we used Nextcloud in the beginning Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we really tried to use open tech for everything. Um, but that's also, it's also hard when you're working with clients that don't have the same systems. So when you work mm. with, um, a lot of the organizations that we work with are, are, um, you know, they're spread out all over the world and they use other systems and we need to kind of be able to plug into them. So I think that's part of the puzzle. Um, yeah. but I, but also, you know, what you just said there about, you know, not really enjoying being a systems administrator. Uh, I don't enjoy being a systems administrator. I do enjoy tinkering to a degree, but generally when I'm tinkering, it's not with tech. Um, Mm. So like I have a lathe in my workshop and I uh, can lathe on some wood. I can't do anything with the rounded wood that I've lathed. I don't know what that is. But you've got lots of rounded wood. I do have a lot of rounded wood. Mm. Um, But, you know, if if your value is like, we, we should decentralize stuff. Um, we should use more open source things. It doesn't mean that you have necessarily have to use all open source things. I remember when we worked at Mozilla, um, someone called Gunner, who did a lot of facilitation, his company, which is Aspiration Tech, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. They, at that time, used all open source stuff. And I remember one of the people he worked with finding that extremely difficult. Um, so, yeah. I mean, open source stuff can be amazing, and the new version of Jitsi is great. Um, Nextcloud now is fantastic, but it takes a while sometimes for the UX side of things to get up to scratch, um, which is yeah. which is interesting. Another thing I wanted to mention, you know, 
one article that I still point to people towards when they say, well, what do you mean if you don't mean like open source is there was an article called 50 Shades of Open, which was published about six years ago now. Um, and it's not really 50 different types of openness, but it's like openness means rights, it means access, it means use, means transparency, means participation, <clears throat> means enabling other people to be open. It means being philosophically aligned with open principles, all the kind of stuff that you do as part of your open org ambassador work, right? Mm. Yeah, we're actually going to be talking about my most recent book on this podcast sometime in the near future. Um, it's called Opening Up Social Impact Organizations. I read it together uh, with another open advocate, uh, Heather Leeson. Hi, Heather, if you're listening. Um, and that's really all about sort of the, the cognitive and behavioral side of open. So, uh, you know, disconnected from open data or open tech, there's a way of being uh, mm. in the open source world that that's really about mindset and behaviors. And, and that book is all about how you kind of bring those mindsets into uh, nonprofit, humanitarian, non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, we also have on Learn With, we have our course, what we talk about when we talk about open. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, and maybe, you know, listeners who have been listening for a while know that when we talk about open, it's actually pretty rare that we're talking specifically about open code or open tech. Um, so I guess this episode is a chance for us to geek out about open tech stuff. <coughs> well, it is. Yeah. And maybe we can go through some of the things that maybe we, we do host ourselves. Um, so, for example, Etherpad, which we're using for our show notes right now. We've used this for over a decade. We used it in Mozilla. You might have used it before Mozilla, um, but certainly Mozilla, the foundation back in the day, and even the corporation was pretty much run off etherpads linked to one another. And I think you've still got some of them backed up from, from that. Then. I do. Mm. I, I am famous for being able to find old etherpads. Uh, and there's some there's some new open tech uh, in the area of, of Etherpad that I've seen lately that's pretty cool, like HedgeDoc, mm. uh, which is a Markdown-based um, sort of Etherpad kind of uh, tool. Yeah, and the, the Bonfire team that I've been working with outside the co-op, they use CryptPad mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's loads of these things when you start looking into it. And it's about just trying things out and seeing what you could potentially use things for. I think sometimes people are just like, oh, I'm going to replace Google Calendar with ProtonMail Calendar, and I'm going to replace, I don't know, Outlook with this other email provider or whatever. And sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's about, sometimes open source technology is just different and mm -hmm. allows you to do different things than you could previously. So like, there's a French organization called Framasoft, Framasoft, I don't know how you pronounce it. And they just have lots of little weird things. Like they've got a an events platform, which ostensibly allows you to get off Facebook events, but it also runs activity pubs. So it's like a decentralized, federated way of doing events. Mm -hmm. And it just enables, like I remember back in 2007 and 2008, there just being loads of weird Web2 things. And all of those ideas haven't gone away. It's just the big tech isn't great at innovation. It buys innovation yeah. and then locks it up. I think the thing is about the, the open tools is, you know, 
stuff like Etherpad, there are some definite benefits to using Etherpad for note taking and and internally in small groups and organizations. Um, you know, but there's also like Etherpad is is something that requires quite a bit of technical support. So like if you want to host it yourself and if you want to have some of the bells and whistles that something like Google Docs has, you need to set that up yourself. You need to use plugins. You have to figure out how, you know, how to actually do the the server maintenance to be able to have some of those features. And I think a lot of open source tools work like that, that like there's mods or plugins or modules. And it's a shame that some things are not easier um, for people who are maybe not quite as nerdy as as we are. Um, because well, there's like, a lot of power in, I think, you know, when people talk about UX, oh, the UX of this isn't as good or whatever. I think, for and people use the example of Apple. I was looking at Apple's Apple Cash thing the other day, which is a new way of being able to pay one another or whatever. And what they do an amazing job of is the mental model and being able to understand what it is that you're doing and having really powerful defaults that lots of people don't really stray from, but the, the the default is really powerful. Open source stuff tends to be about serving lots of different people's needs. So accessibility is baked in often, um, the ability to change it for your own purposes, but sometimes the default is very niche and doesn't mm-hmm. particularly suit your your purposes. Um, we use Wiki.js for our our wiki at wiki.weareopen.com. And that is great. That is absolutely fantastic. But I had to learn how to install Docker to be able to, on DigitalOcean, to be able to do that. Yeah. And I remember having this conversation with my son. How did you learn this this stuff? Well, I've never done a computer science course. I've never done it, and I'm not, like, advanced in any way. But I know enough networking. I know enough, like, server stuff because I'm interested and to be honest, back in the day, you had to learn the command line to play games. So that's where it all comes from. Yeah, I think I think there's definite power to uh, some of the you know some of the more nerdy kinds of skills that allow you to self-host mm. um, and and to not be afraid when you break things. Um, like I, you know, I've often said in my career, I'm not a developer, but I know how to code. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I don't think of myself as a developer at all, but I understand enough code to be able to make things work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like mash things think, together, kind and of, and mash things together, and mm-hmm. you know, copy paste, and know, you know, uh oh, that should be a semicolon, <laughs> that that sort of level. Right. Um, but there's, you know, I anytime I tinker around with my own websites. I always wonder how people have websites without being, or even even like WordPress, like without knowing just the most basic HTML, CSS, because mm. I never just use whatever the, the, the GUI is, the graphical mm. user interface for any tool. I always switch, like I, I do it in the tool first, but then I am always finding that I have to switch mm. to, a, to a mode or I'm irritated because I can't figure out where the code mode is. I've just thought that some people might be listening to this who are like, they're talking about self-hosting, but they're not really self-hosting. They're getting someone else to self. They're getting someone else to host open source software. So yes, technically, self-hosting would be to host it on your own server underneath your desk on your own internet connection. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having DigitalOcean droplets or getting Web Architects, which is another co-op in our network, to host Badge Wiki, for example, that kind of thing. 
Um, so it's almost like a spectrum, really, from what's called software as a service. So you you don't even think about where it's hosted. You click a few buttons and you've got a Trello account. Um, and at the other end is that, yeah, I'm going to spin up my own thing on my own device, on my own connection. And we're talking about something in between, which is more, I'm going to use open source software and install that on a server, which I have paid for, but I don't have physical access to. Right. Do you think people Just were really? Clear. Do you think people were really sitting there being like, "You're not really self-hosting"? Where's I your... have been corrected on the Fediverse many times ah. using the term self-hosting. Yes. Yeah, that's. Um... So just to be absolutely clear. Yes. Um, all right then. So in an ideal world, so a few years ago, I got rid of my Gmail account. You recently got rid of your Gmail account, I think. Mm, Personal I... one. No, I I transferred. You transferred it yeah. from a, yeah, okay. So I tran- transferred to ProtonMail. So in a perfect world, I would like to use lots of different organizations' stuff for both my personal and co-op tech choices. But realistically, I don't. Yeah, I... Sometimes I feel like I'm strong armed into some of my tech choices. Like it's not even, it's not really even a choice, you know, like I, so my first Gmail account was invitation. I was Mm. invited to use Gmail back when, you know, in the before times, (laughs) like (laughs) the very before times when you had to have an invite to Gmail. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I started my foray into the world of tech and art and culture, you know, with using Gmail. And at this point, 18 years later or whatever. Yeah. um, You know, at this point, actually getting my data out, I guess there's maybe there's an argument to be made that I could just throw away the last 20 years worth of data. Mm. But I feel weird about that. I'm a digital pack rat. I'm I'm totally a data hoarder. I don't delete my data. I mean, I delete data for stuff that I know I'm not going to use, and I'm very good about like cleaning up my data footprint. So your Twitter account goes back literally to when you signed up. No, uh, okay, that's Twitter is the one place where I do a regular delete. Do you do it manually, or is it on a rolling auto thing? I do it manually, and I think I have it on my. I have a calendar like a calendar reminder once a year, oh, okay. maybe. Okay. And I, I also use, um, like I, I actively remove my data from data brokers. So there's a site called, uh, what's it called? Op- I have to look it up. Optory, it's called. Okay. We'll have to stick that in the, in the show notes. Yeah. So I'm so I'm active on on that, but like personal communications or personal and professional communications, where I'm interacting with another real life human being over the internet, I I keep those communications and I like refer back to them. Mm-hmm. So switching from email would mean like switching from Gmail would mean that I would have 18 years worth of communications that I can no longer search. Yeah, it's difficult. And there's all of those kind of considerations. And in a in an ideal world, I think from some people's point of view, and I guess mine to some degree, you'd have your own email, not just paying for to use someone else's email server, but you'd have your own email server. 
But the reason we can't do that isn't because it's not technically quite easy to run an email server. It's because these days you have to add SPF records and all this kind of stuff to make sure that you're not just spamming the world. So we can't have nice things because of spammers. And then with like the Fediverse, people say, oh, well, what we should do is we should all have our own instance of Macedon or PixelFed or whatever. Well, maybe that's maybe not a great use of resources. And also, I really like the local timeline, for example. So there's something about that aspect. And then when it comes to things like, I don't know, Nextcloud versus Google, we've already talked about this, but if everyone in the same organization is using something, that's one thing. But when you're working between organizations, which of course we do all of the time, there's an expectation like a base layer in the same way that people were using, everyone was using Zoom during the pandemic. And the reason that we started to use it instead of things like Whereby, which is web-based, was because it does break out rooms and because everyone knew how to use it without us having to do some remedial work. So some but of it I think that's a really I think that's a, a really key point to to hosting your own software, using so open source software and like interacting between organizations or it like in work in general is the you know the the leap that people have to make to to learn a new tool. Hmm. It's not, you know, some people, they can just open up a new tool. They'll take one look at the interface and they'll be like, okay, great. I'm happy to bang on this and no problem. I'm going to figure it out. But there are plenty of people who, especially since the pandemic, who are coming online, going through digital transformation and simply don't have the technical skills. They haven't been using tech the way that, um, that others have for a really long time. They open up an interface and it's not immediately clear what they should do with it, right. how to use it. I mean, when we run community calls, for example, we often use Etherpad because it's our tool of choice and it's relatively easy to onboard people to. Exactly. But at the beginning of every single community call that we do, we explain in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little user icon. If you click on this, you can pick your own color and write in your name. You know, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a very basic, like very light touch. Here's how you use the tool, but we have to do that every time because most of the time people have never seen Etherpad. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's a good point, and I think that one of the things that I used to explicitly want out of technology, and I'm, this has only recently changed, is that I want my choices to be ones that other people could follow. So it sounds a bit pretentious to say I want to be a role model for other people but literally if I'm going on a slightly different path to people if I'm going to eat different food to them if I'm going to use different technology to them whatever I feel like there should be easy and obvious steps to get to where I am if other people want to make the same choices and it's only recently probably during the pandemic having some therapy whatever that I've kind of realized that I I just don't want to do what I want to do so, for example, if I wanted, not many people worldwide are actually installing Linux on a Mac Mini M1, but I want to do it, and therefore I shouldn't have as the rationale other people being able to copy me. They can if they want. I will document stuff, whatever. But I, I'm not doing it for other people's benefit anymore. I'm doing it for my benefit. And the only reason that I would actually care is if it gets in the way of me doing my work. So just circling back to the point we just made, which is, if it makes us if it makes it harder for our co-op to do our work internally, or if it makes it harder for us to do our work with different organizations, 
then we're likely to make different technology choices. Um, and the obvious example of this is the fact that we're using Jitsi, someone else's server of Jitsi for internal work, but we're using Zoom now for external stuff mm. because they're two different use cases. I'm just I'm just thinking about this idea of being a, a role model in tech and like making making choices so that other people can can follow your lead if they want to. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Because yeah, so and I, I ask from so 2000 and polit history started my career what 2003 I guess as a teacher started at 2004 2007 start January um, January 2007 get on Twitter we're talking about talking about technology and when you're a teacher and a network of teachers you kind of have this responsibility to share stuff with other people and make it easy for other people to follow your footsteps because teachers are crazy crazy busy and haven't got time to learn the tech or whatever so literally either explaining things step by step or recommending stuff that's easy to pick up and use and that was the time of the great web 2 boom that i've already referenced and therefore you could point to different tools and say look use this one not that one i've tried this one let's try this one out whatever and lots of them got shut down for different reasons um, etc but i carried that into then working in universities and being part of a network of ed tech projects etc and so if things had too much of a high barrier to entry, were too expensive to host, or were just confusing, I wouldn't recommend them. And then I went to Mozilla, and it's all just craziness and whatever. But I kind of kept still, oh, and, and I started being seen as like having more tech skills than I actually had because I worked for a tech company. And so I tried to almost double down on, no, this isn't that hard. You just need to do these things here. So it's only recently when I've kind of gone, I don't actually care if you can follow these instructions or not. Mm. And I don't really care if you can follow my steps into being a vegetarian who's part of a co-op who likes messing and tinkering around. I get that not everyone wants to do that, but I'm very happy doing it myself. Right. I think think I've been in that frame of mind for... I, I definitely feel like at Mozilla, I was really interested you know, um, in helping people gain the sort of technical and social skills that they need to be able to be internet-y. Hmm. Um, I think I was a, a lot more focused on that sort of educational mission earlier in my career. And at this point, it's I want to help people understand methodologies uh, that we use. And, but I'm not really particularly concerned about the technical side of things, like the, like helping people have tech, tech skills for any of the tools that I use, you know? So, and, and it's a sort of, it's, it's a nuanced position, but it's sort of weird because that was very much where I was focused at the beginning of like kind of ed tech, you know, I was really focused on it. So now you could argue because everything's so kind of smartphone first, easy to use, tech is much more mainstream, whatever. It's kind of not our job anymore. Yeah, no. And I mean, we we definitely, I feel like a lot of the work we do definitely focuses on more, either more the social aspect 
or like the intellectual aspect of using tech as opposed to the technical aspect of using yeah. tech. So can you can you use proprietary technology to work openly? Yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you definitely can. Would Although it be better, I would it be better to use open source technology to work openly? Of course. Oh, I mean, I've definitely had that fight. I think that, like, you know, the the history of sort of the divide between, you know, people who advocate for open source and people who advocate for free software. Um, that that sort of argument I've definitely had thrown in my face a couple of times. People have told me, oh, well, you're not, you know, you're not a free software person. You're barely even open source because you use corporate tech tools uh, or because you work with uh, organizations that they didn't think are open enough or whatever. Oh um, yeah. I mean, I remember you getting shouted at, at a co-tech event yes. <laughs> because, you know, you didn't use the most extreme open source free software stuff on your phone or whatever. Yeah. That, you know, and I call these people tech vegans and <laughs> some people reject this, this label, but you get extremely, you know, it's not, it's not a bad analogy. And you get some people who will refuse to engage unless you meet them on their terms. Yeah. And I don't think that's reasonable. I agree. It is not reasonable. And um, I went to a Chaos Computer Club, uh, CC29, I think, Mm. uh, several years ago. And I went with this awesome woman who is a documentary uh, filmmaker who was making a documentary about cybersecurity. Um, and we and I took her to the the CCC conference, Chaos Computer Club conference for mm. for C. I think yeah, it's yeah, called three yeah. C. But in any case, um, and it was a it was a pretty wild couple of days because I was I was helping her to understand some of the jargon that was happening and sort of helping her understand some of the, the tech industry insider stuff. But we were both women. And um, in this sort of infosec community, it's, I mean, in tech in general, like there's only 3% women in open source who are specialized in open source. It's a very, very small percentage anyway. Um, But if you look into infosec numbers, then it's, you know, crazy and scary and cry. Um, Where was I going with this? Yeah. And I, I thought it was really interesting at the, at the CCC, how, how conversations sort of evolved. Like, like I'm not sure if it was because I am a woman that the conversations went the way that they did or because I don't, like, I'm not, you know, an absolutionist when it comes to my technology choices. Um, because it was definitely the case that, like, if you, you know, if you're walking around there without, you know, Linux on your machine, then it definitely said something about you. So mm-hmm. I don't know if, it, if the, like, the sort of animosity that I experienced there was because of my gender or because of my tech or if it was both yeah possibly possibly both but i mean it happens it's not it's it's a gender thing and it's just a thing as in people the the linux distribution so i'm already using linux which is reasonably hardcore compared to the general population but the version of Linux that I use, which is called Pop OS, which is a derivative of Ubuntu, which is a derivative of Debian, gets dismissed as like, you know, just a shiny toy. <laughs> and people are like, oh, I use Arch Linux, by the way. Um, and I use Arch, by the way, is literally now almost like a meme. 
because like it shows that you're hardcore in, in some kind of way. So I think we're being quite dismissive or being a bit down on on people who are quite into their open source and free software stuff. But I think that the re- it's not just a technological choice that people are making, it's a political choice. And I think that's why. It's a bit like, for example, being a being a it, I'm using the food analogy again, like being vegetarian, being vegan, it's a political choice as well as a food choice. And open source and open working is a political choice as well as a sociological technical choice as well. Um and what I mean by that is that anything which is political has a worldview and a way that the world should be. And if you're rolling along just with the way the world is, then you're not really you are making a political choice, but your political choice is being a centrist. Um, and centrists are reason why centrists are reason are, are the reason we can't have nice things. I would say. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, you know, like uh, the thing is, is that it's a te- technical choice is not always a political choice because it, it can't be because there are plenty of people that don't realize that they have a choice. Um, they are put into an environment where they are having to interact over the internet with using digital technologies. And they are quite simply unaware that there is an alternative to zoom, you know, or that you can play around with those different tech choices and that choosing something other than zoom, for example, says something about right. so what a technical choice. Do. If it is a choice is always a political choice. If it's not a choice, then it's not a political choice. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think people will understand the politics of technology. Like, I don't know that people know that, that, you know, that there's a political choice for between using Firefox and Chrome, for example. Hmm. Maybe, I mean, I mean, I'm using politics very widely in the same way that you could say it's a political choice to, I don't know, carry your own water around rather than buying bottled water or... Whatever. Right. So I'm using it, and I guess I'm using it as a shorthand to say it's a way of expressing and instantiating a worldview and values. And if you're not aware that the choice you have is a reflection of your values, then you're not really making a choice, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, there's something there about not really making a choice. Like, I mean, you know, a few years ago, people didn't have a choice between you know, operating systems. It was Windows or Windows, you know, mm. for a really long time. And now it's, you know, a choice between uh, Windows or Mac OS, you know. Or, and, and Well, yes, Linux, if you know. But I, I wonder how many people realize that Linux is an operating system or have ever even heard the word Linux. You know, I mean, maybe people who are working, you know, in inter- in te- technology, that should hopefully and, be common. And the other common. thing is, I think sometimes because we're interested in technology, I'm I'm talking about my own experience here and the people who I follow and whatever. I think sometimes um, we can overestimate how important something is. So because I spend so much time on computers and around technology and things, I can think that that is the most important thing for me to make the right decisions about these things. Um, and there's things that need doing in the world where it doesn't really matter what tool you're using. Um, so I think sometimes we can be navel-gazing when actually mm-hmm. we should be doing the important work because 
you might be using Nextcloud instead of Google Workspace or whatever, but if you're not doing the work of like bringing down the monarchy, overthrowing <laughs> the you know the fascist government or whatever, it doesn't really matter. We definitely went off the hosting topic here. <laughs> I mean, we went full on philosophical and political on this, as opposed to bit, talking talking about one one button installs and mm. like. And you know what? I could go down a different rabbit hole now, but we're probably we've probably said enough about this. What what's kind of your final words on if if people haven't really thought about this before? Like what what would you suggest they think about? Do first whatever. I mean, I think I think that your uh, your technology choices are only one tiny little piece of the puzzle, and what you do in life matters, and it matters across multiple spectrums, not just you know the whether or not you're using open source software, but how you're interacting with people, both online and offline, and that you know basically assuming that somebody is anything because they have a MacBook Pro and, you know, not a ThinkPad or whatever is like not a good way to to interact with the world. Mm. I just, I mean, I, it's just such a small sliver of who we are as people, the tech choices that we make. And I think that people have reasons for choices that maybe, you know, you're, you don't have the full context. So don't be judgy. <laughs> Yeah, I think that it comes down to judging people um, and not knowing the full context. And the other day we were talking about the difference between credentials and recognition and the difference between fitting someone into your framework and way of understanding the world versus encountering them in their context. And I think a lot lot of that kind of goes into this conversation as well. Um, So some people wear their heart in their sleeves and everything they do (laughs) Um, meshes with their values and they try and push that as far as they possibly can and other people have reasons why they don't do that but have the same values and some people don't have those values and I think diversity is important yeah. Whew, I could talk about this for a lot longer but let's yeah. let's pause it there okay um, we are always looking for feedback you know Doug and I are just hanging out in a room and we talk about stuff and then we sometimes listen back sometimes not anyways if you tell us what you think we would like to know especially about about my microphone (laughs) especially about Doug's microphone Um, thanks for listening thanks for listening